Please turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and this morning we will be looking at the first 15 chapter, or 15 verses of Ecclesiastes 3. Please give your full attention to God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to speak, keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This poem at the beginning of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes is probably the best known passage from this book. It's actually even pretty well known out there in the broader culture, mainly because of popular music. Back in the 1960s, the group The Birds did a, they had a huge hit, one of their biggest hits, and it's a song that has been covered by 90 other musicians and bands. A song called Turn, Turn, Turn. It is a song that was a huge hit in our culture, even though it is almost a word-for-word quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, these first eight verses. It was not written by the birds. It was actually written by a famous folk singer named Pete Seeger. Seeger wrote this song as a protest against the Vietnam War. He wrote it, actually, if you look at the lyrics to the song, Turn, 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 it's almost word for word from what we have here in Scripture, except the only significant change he made was in the last phrase that he added to the end of the song. The last line in the song, Turn, 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 says, A time for war and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. It's unfortunate. 
that he felt the need to add that phrase at the end. And it's ironic because by adding that at the end, he's basically making a plea to say, we can bring an end to this war. We, if we really work together, we can bring peace to the world. And I say that's ironic because that is actually the exact opposite message of this poem in the context of scripture. This poem is not about our need to take control of the times of our lives. This poem is about how we don't control the times of our lives. We actually control very little about the times in our lives. Don't you really wish, if you admit it, don't you wish that you could hit the pause button on the timeline of your life sometimes? That you could hit the pause button when you're about to lose your temper and you know you're going to say or do something you're going to regret? Don't you wish that you could hit the pause button when it's time to go take that test that you forgot to study for? Don't you wish that you could hit the pause button when you're sitting on the beach sipping a nice bottle of lemonade looking at a beautiful sunset? Or don't you wish that you could hit the fast-forward button sometimes, like when you stand at the door of the dentist's office? Or don't you wish sometimes you could hit the rewind button, like that moment after you realize you just dropped your phone in the swimming pool? Do we really control the times of our lives? Or are our lives really more about reacting to the times that we face? Human beings have pondered and debated this issue since the beginning of time. Free will or fate? Determinism or free choices? Do we control our lives or is there some force beyond us that actually controls us? William Ernest Henley is mainly known for one poem that he wrote. It's called Invictus, which is the Latin word for unconquered. And probably the line from that poem that you've heard more than once is the last line of the poem where he gets to his point. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Baloney. Nobody is the master of their fate. Nobody is the conqueror or the captain of their soul. This perspective of Ecclesiastes that we're going to see here in the beginning of chapter 3 is that someone else controls our lives. Someone else sets the times. And our lives are all about reacting to that. Remember that the speaker here, in this portion of Ecclesiastes, the speaker is the this hypothetical person we're calling the professor because he's all about philosophy and worldview and how that impacts life. But particularly remember that this professor has limited his worldview to what's under the sun. Ignoring the reality above the sun, ignoring spiritual reality, only the material world, what's under the sun, he's looking for meaning and purpose. If all there is and all we can know is what's under the sun, what is the meaning and purpose of my life? He has sought that meaning and purpose so far in three areas. First of all, in knowledge and wisdom. And then secondly, in his prosperity and his pleasures in this world. And then last week we saw how he looked to his work to find meaning and purpose in the work that he did. 
But each time, each one of these three quests, he's ended up at the same place. It's all meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. So now he looks at life, and he looks at the timeline. He looks at the passing of times. He looks at the events that happen under the sun. And he tries to find meaning and purpose in that. When he looks at what happens in his lifetime, in the lifetime of the people around him, in the events of the world, he sees order, not chaos. Not only does he see order and structure in the creation, but he sees order in history as he looks at history. There does appear to be some plan or some purpose behind everything that happens in the world. And that's why he says in verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is what he observes. And then he basically takes, there's uh, 14 different pairs, and it's always amazing how God always seems to somehow bring in the symbolism of seven. 14 is seven times two. There's 14 pairs of opposite actions and emotions. Actions and emotions that are opposite to one another. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die. A time to plant, a time to harvest. A time to construct and a time to destruct. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time for war and a time for peace. In those couplets, he basically covers many of the majors. It's an amazingly kind of an exhaustive list of the typical events that we see under the sun. But he makes the point at the very beginning, doesn't he? That it's not about us controlling our time because what he starts with are the two big events of our lives that we have absolutely no control over. The time we're born and the time that we die. Job says in chapter 14, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. His days are determined and the number of his months is with you, God, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. And so how do we live in light of the fact that we don't control the events of our lives? When you face an event, when you face a time in your life, time to die, time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, time for war, time to peace, how do you know what's appropriate? Well, it depends upon the circumstances, doesn't it? If you, at least in Pennsylvania anyway, if you plant in November, that's a bad idea. If you harvest in April, that's a really bad idea. He mentions mourning and laughing. If, if you mourn at a, at a wedding, that's inappropriate. If you laugh at a funeral, that's inappropriate. In verse 7, he talks about tearing or sowing or keeping silent or speaking. And most commentators think that he's actually referring to the event of death. He really, as we've seen, has death on his mind a lot. But when you think of the death of a loved one, in biblical times, the response to the death of a loved one is to tear your garments in grief and mourning. And so is it a time of tear or is it a time to sow? In other words, the time of mourning needs to end now and we need to go on with life. So we need to sew our garment back together so that we can wear it. Or when you're mourning over the death of a loved one, is it a time to speak to the grieving person or is it a time to be silent and just be there? Again, we're reacting. There's an appropriate reaction if we 
understand the times, the circumstances of the time that we're in. And the point of the whole, the whole poem is that the times of our lives determine our path, it determines our feelings, it determines our actions. We don't control the times of our lives, they control us. We don't control the times of our lives, they control us. That's just a truism as he examines what life is like under the sun. Well, that's the point of the poem. It's beautiful, it's, it's rhythmic, it's, 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 a, it's a really a great poem, but that's the point of it. Why does he, te- why does he tell us this? What's his, what's his reflection upon us? Well, that's what verses 9 through 15 are about. He says in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? He asks that question all the time in the book of Ecclesiastes. What gain is there? What, what's the profit in this? And when he asks the question, it's always a rhetorical question. It's always to be assumed that the answer is none. There is no gain in this. There is no meaning in this. There's no purpose in this. In verse 10, he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now again, he mentions God. Even though he, re- he, re- he restricts his worldview to what's under the sun, as we've seen all along, he he's not an atheist. He does acknowledge there is a God, but this God is distant and unknowable. But it's interesting, the view of God that he has is this distant, unknowable God who is above the sun, therefore cannot enter into his understanding of the purpose and meaning of things. This God not only exists, but this is a God who determines the times of our lives. It's interesting that the professor, as we are getting to know him, he believes in the doctrine of providence. That God does order history. The orderliness that he observes in history isn't due to some kind of impersonal fate like the world talks about. It comes from a creator who has determined the times of our lives. He believes that God is sovereign. He believes that God has a plan for our lives. That's not the issue. The problem is he can't make any sense of it. He doesn't understand, looking at the times of our lives under the sun, what the world is God doing? And so the work that we are given to do to him is just busy work because he sees no meaning and purpose in it. In verse 11, he makes this statement. It sounds like a very positive statement. He says, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. But he says that out of frustration. He's basically saying who it is that it's God who determines if it's an appropriate time to plant or an appropriate time to harvest. It's God who determines whether it's an appropriate time to embrace someone or to refrain from embracing someone. And so God has ordered all these things in such a way that from God's perspective, it's beautiful in his sight. In verse 14, the professor says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has set the times. You can't add to them. You can't take away from them. He has a a beautiful plan in his own mind that cannot be added to or taken away from. He has the same view of God that's revealed to us in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, 
where, it says, where God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. If he believes in a powerful, sovereign God who has a beautiful plan for all of history, why does that frustrate him? Well, that answer is at the end of verse 11 where he says, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's referring again to the fact that we are made in the image of God. Why do we care what the big plan is? Why do we even care? Because we're made in the image of God. It's wired into us to care. We are not like the dog or the cat, that as long as you feed them and take care of them, that they're fine. No, we want to know why. We want to find meaning and purpose in life. We aren't content just to exist because we're made in the image of God. He's put eternity in our hearts. He's given us this innate sense there's, that there's more to reality than what we can touch and feel and hear and smell. There's more to reality than this physical world under the sun. He's put eternity in our hearts, but we cannot figure it out. What the big plan is, what the meaning is, what the purpose is. It may be beautiful, this plan, this grand plan to all of history may be beautiful in God's sight, but from our perspective, it looks like chaos. We can't figure it out. I have often used, it's such a great illustration, that's why I use it over and over again, is the illustration of the tapestry. You go into a castle over in Europe or over in England, and you go into the main hall, you'll often see beautiful, intricate, gloriously beautiful tapestries hanging from the wall. But when you go over and you take the corner of the tapestry and you pick it up and you look behind it, on the back of the tapestry, it's nothing but a chaos of threads. Beautiful on one side, chaos on the other side. It's always been a great illustration of what the, the professor is trying to explain here. God looks at his grand plan for all things and all of history, and it's beautiful and intricate, light and dark, beautifully woven together into a very meaningful design. But as we look from under the sun, all we see is chaos. And that's what frustrates the professor. It says in verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before him. And the commentators wrestle with it now, the fear of the Lord in most places in Scripture, when it refers to the fear of the Lord, it's, 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 it's good. It's that reverential, loving uh, reverence towards our Creator and our Redeemer. But here, to keep in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's probably more that fear of not knowing, that fear of being out of control. That's the fear of being someone who's at the mercy of a powerful being who has planned all things, but you don't know what he's doing or where he's going with your life or anything else in history. The fear of living in the uncontrolled and the unknown under the sun. Paul Simon, speaking of pop music, Paul Simon wrote a song called Slip Sliding Away. And if you ever heard the music to that, it sounds like a light, airy tune, like, you know, really kind of a fluffy song. But if you actually read the lyrics, he's actually making the same profound statement that the book of Ecclesiastes is saying here. Here, Paul Simon is describing this professor's view from life under the sun. Listen to the lyrics. God only knows. God makes his plan. The information's unavailable. 
to the mortal man. We work our jobs, collect our pay, believe we're gliding down the highway, when in fact, we're slip sliding away. That's why the professor's conclusion in verse 13, in verse 13 it sounds like he's saying something positive again, something that you might read in the book of James or in the book of Proverbs. But understand that as he says what he says in verse 13, he's saying it out of frustration and resignation in this powerless state of being at the mercy of a sovereign God who's ordering time in a way that we can't understand. And so he says, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Remember last week, this is what he said about our work. Since you cannot under the sun find meaning and purpose in the times of your life, the best you can do is enjoy a good meal, enjoy a fine drink, enjoy the, 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 the very temporary productiveness of your work, but it's all going to go away in a moment, and ultimately it's all meaningless and purposeless. In other words, carpe diem, seize the day. Enjoy the moment as long as it lasts. If God gives you the ability to have these pleasurable moments in this world under the sun, but since everything ultimately is unknowable and, and without meaning and purpose, enjoy it for the moment, but it'll be gone with nothing left to show for it. There is nothing to be gained. He always comes back to that bottom line, all is vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, it's all chasing after the wind. But, and remember, this is the point in every one of these Ecclesiastes sermons when we're going to say, but what does the rest of Scripture say? The book of Ecclesiastes was always meant to be written in the context of the rest of Scripture. The professor's perspective is always meant to drive you to the rest of Scripture to find meaning and purpose, because that's where we will find it. We can find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Why? Because God has revealed it. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see, that's what the professor has not brought into his equation of searching for meaning and purpose under the sun. He has not brought the revelation that God has given to us through his word into his equation. Revelation has come to us from above the sun to show us what God's plan and purpose is for all of history. Did you notice there that the professor says that nothing can be added to or taken away from God's sovereign plan for the times of our lives? I point that out because what's interesting is, is that the Bible says the same thing about itself. Nothing can be added to or taken away from what God has revealed in his word. Three times in scripture it says that. Do not add to or take away from the revelation that God has given to us in the scripture. This is the unveiling of God's beautiful plan for all the times of our lives. For the beginning of history all the way to the end of history, here is God's revelation. Here is the plan. It doesn't reveal everything to us. There's many times in life where we wish it was more detailed as a plan. Who does God want me to marry? What job does he want me to take? Where does he want me to live? No, we are given 
All the revelation about God's grand plan for the times of our lives is all here. It is sufficient for every need, every moment of our lives. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Remember when, when the disciples, after Jesus was raised from the dead, they wanted some more details about the plan of God, and they asked him about his second coming, his coming in the kingdom. Remember what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 7? He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's not been revealed to you, and it won't be revealed to you. It was, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. You have what you need. God has revealed to you what you need to know to fulfill the mission that he has called you to accomplish in this world. Go and be my witnesses. The word of God is sufficient. It's only by God's word that we know what is appropriate for the times of our lives that we don't control. God controls the time of our lives, whether they're good times or, or evil times, good times or suffering times. God is in control of the times. And how do we know what's the appropriate reaction on our part? That's why we have the word of God to teach us whether to live or die, whether to plant or uproot, whether to build or destroy, whether to dance or to mourn, God's word will guide us. You see, God is not distant. God is holy and transcendent, yes, but he is also intimately involved in every detail of every life, of every time under the sun. And God loves his people intensely. He has not only planned all of history, he has entered into history in the person of his eternally begotten son, Jesus Christ. God, in the right time, the exact right time, in this beautiful, intricate tapestry of a plan, at the very perfect time, God sent his son. That's Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And at the very perfect time, Jesus went public in his ministry because it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he declared, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the night before Jesus was to go to the cross to die and shed his blood for our sins, John wrote, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. There is this incredible plan of redemption that is at the core of everything God does in history. Everything that God orchestrates in this tapestry of history is all centered around this plan of redemption. Christ was born into this world at the perfect time. He brought the news of the kingdom of God at the perfect time. And at the perfect time, he went to the cross and he died in the place of his people. That their sins might be washed away. That they might be given the gift of his righteousness. That they might be made acceptable in the presence of a holy God. That they might be adopted into God's family. That's the plan that drives all of history. As Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
As the poem says in Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there's a time and a time for every matter under heaven. You see, in the past, Hebrews 1 says, God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I'll give you a phrase to summarize all of God's perfect, beautiful plan for history. It's called the covenant of grace. God promised to Abraham, to David, through Christ in the new covenant, he brought the promise of a covenant relationship between himself and his people, and the blood of Christ was the blood of the covenant that made all of his promises possible. David says in Psalm 31, verse 5, I trust in you, O Lord. I said, you are my God. My times are in your hand. See, that's what a believer says. I trust you, Lord, because my times are in your hands. The professor says, I don't trust you, God, because my, time is, my times are in your hands, and I don't trust you because I don't know what you're doing. But David says, I have believed your covenant promises. I trust in your promises. I trust in you, in your holy character, in your love for me. I trust in you, and so I can rest in the fact that my times are in your hands, whether they're good times or bad times, suffering or prosperity. I trust you, Lord. My times are in your hands. You see, there is no comfort in the doctrine of providence without the grace of God. You, if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings or J.R.R. Tolkien, you know that at some point before the sermon ended, you were going to hear this famous quote. This is from the Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf the wizard tells Frodo about his mission, explains to him about the history of this ring that he is to carry to Mount Doom, its connection to evil, how it must be destroyed, and how it came to be in Frodo's hands. And after hearing all of that, Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Our times are in the nail-scarred hands of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all we need to know. We know the plan and purpose behind everything that happens in this world, even when we don't know the details. We know the plan and purpose that's behind it all, and we know it's for our good, for our eternal good. We don't need to control the clock. Give up your desire, your wishes, to have a pause button or a fast-forward button or a rewind button. Give up that need to control the times of your life. My good friend Stan Gale has written a book on, the book on Ecclesiastes, and in that book he makes this comment. He says, worry wants control. Remember that. Worry wants control. It wants knowledge of what will happen. It wants power over the what-ifs. 
We don't want to relinquish control because we want our will to be done. But once you've gone to Scripture and seen what the will of God is for your salvation and your eternal good, then you can say, hey, I don't want my will anymore. My times are in your hands, Lord, and I trust you. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed this truth to us from above the sun. Thank you that not only have you revealed to us your plan, you have also revealed to us your son, Jesus Christ, as he took up on himself a human nature, lived a perfect life, and died as the Passover lamb to pay for my sins, the sins of all your people. Father, thank you that because he is raised from the dead and he is seated on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords, we can rest in your sovereign will, your sovereign providence, and your care for us through this life into eternity. We pray in Christ's name, amen.